Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Like it or not, the New York Yankees are one of sports' greatest franchises. Heck, how can they not be when you consider the names who have passed through their clubhouse? Guys like Ruth, Gehring, DiMaggio, Ford, Mantle, Barra, Reggie, Jeter. Yeah, you get it. The list goes on and on and on. Guys who are recognized by just one name. 27 world championships. Yep, like them or hate them, they are one of sports' greatest franchises, period. You can't deny it. But what if I told you there was another franchise also called the New York Yankees and they didn't play baseball? And they too featured a roster of Hall of Fame talent. Guys like Tom Landry, Ace Parker, and Frank Sinkwich, all Hall of Famers, only they are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, not the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Yes, once upon a time, there was a terrific football franchise that played its games in Yankee Stadium known as the New York Yankees, and maybe, just maybe, Their best player ever was a guy named Speck Sanders. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the short but phenomenal career of Speck Sanders and the brief existence of football's version of the New York Yankees. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 98, Speck Sanders and the football version of the New York Yankees. I sure hope everyone out there is doing well and looking forward to what is promising to be a terrific matchup in Super Bowl 55. You know, when you look back through the history of sports, every once in a while you stumble across a name that you've got to find out more about. A name of someone whose career might have been short, but yet, deserves to be explored more for the greatness exhibited on the field. And on today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, 
not only do I dive in deep and explore the short but fantastic career of Speck Sanders, I will also take a deep dive on a football franchise that so few remember or have ever heard of, the New York Yankees. And I'm going to do it all with a terrific guest, Gary Webster, who joined me a while back for a wonderful discussion about the All-America Football Conference. Gary wrote a terrific book called The League That Didn't Exist, the All-America Football Conference. The AAFC had a brief existence, starting playing in 1946 before folding up after the 1949 season. But those four years produced outstanding football and a few great, and I mean great, franchises, including one of the most dominant teams the world of professional football has ever seen, the Cleveland Browns. The San Francisco 49ers also got their start in the All-America Football Conference, and one of the league's other really, really good franchises was the New York Yankees. Gary will tell us all about the Yankees and one of the team's most outstanding players, Speck Sanders. You see, Speck was truly gifted, remarkable. He broke in with the Yankees in 1946 as a tailback and a quarterback and made an immediate impact on the newly formed franchise. But it's what he did in 1947 that made everyone in professional football take notice. And I'm talking about the AAFC and the NFL. Sanders was an absolute one-man wrecking crew running for over 1,400 yards and rushing for 18 touchdowns while also passing for over 1,400 yards and throwing 14 touchdown passes and this in a 14-game season. And as if that wasn't enough, he was also an outstanding punter and on defense, you couldn't throw the ball on him. In fact, after just three years of play, Sanders retired from the game only to be coaxed out of retirement after the 1949 season, came back as a defensive back only, and set an NFL record with 13 interceptions in a 12-game season while suiting up for the New York Yanks. That's right, the New York Yanks. And I'll get into that NFL franchise as well when we talk about the New York Yankees. Yes, a most convoluted history of football in New York City during the late 1940s and early 1950s, and Gary will help me straighten it all out. Now, before we get started, a favor to ask. Not only am I asking you to subscribe to Sports Forgotten Heroes on whatever platform you're listening And not only am I asking you to give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, I'm asking you to please let all your friends, family, co-workers, anyone who you think might enjoy the content that I put out there every other week on Sports Forgotten Heroes to please give SFH a listen and to subscribe. Let's see how many more downloads Sports Forgotten Heroes can get on a weekly basis. I would love to build a much larger listenership in 2021. Also, don't forget to check out SportsFH.com for more information on the Forgotten Heroes I talk about. 
my guests, and it's a great place to check out past episodes as well. Plus, just fill out the comments section with any questions you might have, suggestions for future topics, or just let me know how much you enjoy the podcast. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes or look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook or Instagram and hit like. As always, thanks for your support and thanks for listening. One more note before we get into today's show. Sports Forgotten Heroes is also part of the Sports History Network. This portal, sportshistorynetwork.com, is a great site where you can discover more podcasts about sports history. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com. Okay, back to today's topic. Speck Sanders and football's version of the New York Yankees with my guest, Gary Webster. Gary, thanks for joining me once again on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Warren, it is great to be invited back. Oh, you bet. Hey, before we get started on today's topic, Speck Sanders and the New York Yankees, New York Yanks, and the New York Bulldogs, remind everyone, please, about your interest in the old All-America Football Conference. Well, my interest in the AAFC is because, first of all, I'm a lifelong fan of the Cleveland Browns. And when I began studying the various uh, teams that I have a rooting interest in, I found out about the Browns being born in the All-America Football Conference back in uh, 1946, how they dominated the conference, how they may actually have been responsible for the fact that the AAFC ultimately failed in its goal to uh, achieve parity with the NFL simply by uh, dominating the conference to the point that the fans of other teams lost interest and stopped going to the games. And uh, in writing a book about the 1948 Browns, undefeated, untied league champion, 1948 Browns, I accumulated so much information about the All-America Conference. So I did a little investigating, discovered that uh, no one had written a book about the history of the All-America Conference. There were articles about it. There was uh, a record book of the AAFC, but no book that gave much in the way of uh, detail about the day-to-day history of the AAFC from uh, the time it was born in September of 1944 until it merged with the NFL in December of 1949. So I took the information that I had already accumulated in writing about the 48 Browns, expanded upon it, and came up with uh, my book, The League That Didn't Exist, The History of the All-America Football Conference. Mm -hmm. And it's called The League That Didn't Exist. Why? Because it was the uh, official policy of the NFL to deny that the AAFC even existed. That uh, started with the commissioner, Elmer Layden, at the time in 1944, continued after Layden left that job and was succeeded by Burt Bell. And it wasn't until um, the middle point of the 1948 season that finally 
events forced the NFL to at least acknowledge the fact that we have a competitor out there and it is doing some significant damage to us. But for the first two and a half years of the AAFC, well, actually beyond that, from the time the AAFC was founded in 1944 until the middle of the 48th season, the official NFL policy was to, uh, like an ostrich, stick its head in the sand and deny even the existence of the All-America Conference. Therefore, it was, as far as the NFL was concerned, the league that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I encourage everyone listening, if you haven't done so, either pick up a copy of Gary's book or listen to our podcast that we did together or do both, uh, podcast number 67. Uh, Gary and I talked in depth about the All-America Football Conference. Now, one other thing, uh, well, a couple other things about the AAFC, and you said it, the Cleveland Browns were so dominant that fans of the other teams sort of lost interest. So while the Browns won each championship that the AAFC staged, were there any other good teams or are there any other competitive teams, teams that might have been able to compete? When I say compete, finish at least at 500 or above had they been an NFL team? Well, yes, there were. In fact, um, Warren, one of the problems with AAFC was the competitive imbalance. You had the Browns, who were head and shoulders above everybody else, but there were two other teams that were below them, but not that far below them. One of them being the team that we are going to discuss in some detail tonight, the New York Yankees, and also the San Francisco 49ers, Mm -hmm. who were unfortunately in the same division with the Browns. Then you also had one other team, the Los Angeles Dons, who were pretty much a 500 team during their four-year existence. Then you had the other teams that just could not compete. You had the Brooklyn Dodgers who could not compete and went out of business after three years. The uh, Miami Seahawks of 1946 who were a miserable excuse for a professional (laughs) football team who became the Baltimore Colts, who for two of their three years in the NFL were a punching bag. For Mm -hmm. one year, they were a 500 team, but the other two years, they were a punching bag. But um, in answer to your question, yes, in addition to the Browns, there were the 49ers and the New York Yankees. Now, the 49ers and the Browns went into the NFL in 1950, as did the Colts, a very curious choice to be absorbed into the NFL. But the Yankees, as I'm sure we will talk about uh, momentarily, they were not included in the merger. However, they merged with the uh, New York Bulldogs of the NFL. So the 1950 New York Bulldogs were largely the 1949 AAFC New York Yankees. And the Yankees players who didn't wind up with the Bulldogs wound up with the New York Giants. Mm. The Giants had been an also ran in 1949 and fortified, at least in part, by the players from the Yankees. The uh, Giants tied the Browns for the conference championship in 1950. So the Yankees very well may have been 
we don't have any proof of this, but the Yankees very well may have been, had they been included intact in the merger, a team that could have uh, done some damage in the NFL. Sure, sure. You know, the AAFC also had a lot of great talent. And rather than tell me everything about this great talent, I'm more interested right now to know why these certain players that I'm about to mention to you chose the AAFC over the NFL. And let's start with perhaps the greatest player in the history of the AAFC, um, a guy who I think is is known but is not considered to be one of the greats in NFL history, Otto Graham. Why did Otto Graham choose the AAFC over the NFL? Well, anytime, as you know, Warren, you have two leagues competing against each other, usually it's it's money that talks. And the Browns had uh, an owner by the name of uh, Arthur Mickey McBride, the uh, majority owner. There were some uh, other minority owners. McBride had uh, quite a, deal, a good deal of money. And when McBride hired a guy by the name of Paul Brown to be the coach, and general manager of his team. Um, when Brown was introduced to the media, he told them, tongue-in-cheek, maybe, maybe not, Brown said, uh, I will spend every penny Mickey McBride has to make the Browns a champion. <laughs> and uh, the, the stories that I have read from the reporters who were at that meeting uh, said McBride kind of broke out into a sweat. <laughs> at that point, not not quite certain if uh, Brown meant what he said, but McBride was determined to put on what he called the greatest show in football. It's important to note at this point that when Brown was hired as the head coach and general manager, there were two teams in Cleveland. One of them had not yet played a game, the Cleveland Browns, but they did exist on paper and were building. Cleveland also had the Rams right. in the NFL. The Rams won the 1945 championship. So at this point, Paul Brown is still putting his team together, and it looks like they are going to have to compete with the defending NFL champions for fans, and for money. So McBride knew it is going to cost money to build the kind of team that Clevelanders are going to come to see. Nobody knew at that point that the Rams were going to leave town a month after they won the NFL championship. Mm -hmm. Regardless of that, even after the Rams left, McBride didn't ease up and say, okay, I got Cleveland all to myself now. I can uh, sort of tighten the purse strings. That was never... McBride's attitude, whatever it cost to build the best team in the AAFC, he was willing to spend. And money talks when you're negotiating with uh, college stars who at that time had the option. You could uh, go to the NFL and play for the team that drafted you, or you could go to the AAFC if somebody there was interested in you. Brown also had the advantage of uh, having coached Otto Graham and having seen Graham in action, when Brown was the head coach at Ohio State, Graham was playing a tailback 
for Northwestern mm-hmm. and and gave Ohio State fits when those two teams were on the same uh, field together. So Brown knew what Graham could do, and he had McBride's money to back him up. And Graham had some familiarity with Brown and with uh, with Ohio State, the kind of team that uh, the kind of system that Graham knew he would be playing in if he chose to sign with the Browns. So there were a number of different factors, but I just have every reason to believe, and this may sound overly simplistic, but the Browns showed him the money and he went for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there were some racial issues at that time where, you know, colored ball players couldn't play in the NFL. And one of them was Marion Motley, who was also a member of the Browns, another star who is overlooked. Tell us a little bit about Marion Motley. Well, Brown knew of Motley because he actually had coached against Motley when Brown was the head coach at Massillon High School, and Motley played for Massillon's arch rival, which is Massillon's arch rival to this day, Canton McKinley. So Brown had seen Motley in action as a high school player and had uh, also coached him with the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. So again, there was a familiarity factor involved. But um, Brown, Paul Brown, was was not a crusader for civil rights, but he was a man simply who wanted to win football games. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter to him what color your skin was, what your religion was. He didn't care about any of that. If you could help his team win football games, he wanted you on that team. And Brown knew what uh, Motley could do, not only as a running back, But Motley also, for a couple of years, this was at the time that the transition was taking place between one platoon and two platoon football, Motley was also an outstanding linebacker. Mm. And Motley was a a big man. So when he had the football and was running with it, if you got run over by him, you knew it. (laughs) Conversely... If you were carrying the football and Motley was playing defense and you got run into by him, you also knew it. So Motley could uh, star on both sides of the football. Brown had a familiarity with him, and he had no fear whatsoever about uh, signing African-American players for his team. He wasn't concerned that there was going to be any uh, reaction, negative reaction, to this. That mm-hmm. wasn't his problem. Marion mm-hmm. Motley could help him win games. He wanted Motley on his team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A couple other players that starred in the AAFC, Joe Perry of the 49ers, whom I also did a podcast about. I think people would be surprised to learn that Crazy Legs Hirsch, Elroy Hirsch, actually played in the AAFC as a member of the Chicago Rockets. And then there was Frankie Albert. I don't think enough people really know about Frankie Albert, who was, you know, he was a good quarterback. Can you tell us anything about Frankie? Well, I can tell you that uh, Frankie Albert gave the Browns all kinds of problems. Um, They played the 49ers twice 
each season. The AAFC introduced the uh, double round robin scheduling home and home with every other team mm-hmm. in the league. So the Browns would play the 49ers twice each year. Um, Frankie Albert was responsible for the first game the Browns ever lost. And that was an accomplishment because, as you know, Warren, the Browns in four years in the AAFC only lost four games. Which is just absolutely astonishing, amazing. I don't even know what the word is because I don't care what league you're playing in. Four losses in in four years is crazy. And the fact that this team is not recognized as one of the teams that had gone undefeated you know, um, is crazy. I mean, sure, the Dolphins, perfect season. The Browns had a perfect season, too. And it's not like the talent that they were playing against was not every team was totally inferior. No, absolutely not. And uh, again, uh, you'll decide how far we might go into that a little later in our discussion. But um, in, in 1946, Frankie Albert, past the 49ers to a win over the Browns. They scored 34 points in that game. And in the previous seven games, the Browns had only given up 34 points total. Frankie Albert comes to town and puts 34 points on the board against them, completed 14 out of 21 passes and uh, handed the Browns their first loss. Then he also handed the Browns their last loss. The Browns lost only four games, two to the 49ers, two to the Los Angeles Dons. The only teams that could beat the Browns were uh, the California teams of the AAFC. So in 1949, the Browns had a 29-game unbeaten streak. They had won 27, lost none, and tied two for two calendar years from the midway point of 1947 to the midway point of 1949. The Browns did not lose a game. And, of course, sandwiched in between there was, as you were talking about, the undefeated 1948 season. So the Browns roll into uh, Kizar Stadium, and they haven't lost in 29 games. And Frankie Albert laid 56 points on them. Wow. So uh, that was the most the Browns had ever given up in the AAFC and and one of the biggest totals they've ever given up in, in team history. So... Frankie Albert lays uh, eight touchdowns on this team that had not lost in 29 games. So that tells you a little about uh, the talents of uh, of Frankie Albert. In fact, I mentioned in um, in my book that Blanton Collier, who was one of uh, Paul Brown's assistants and often scouted the upcoming opponent, had an opinion about uh, Frankie Albert before the 1948 season got underway. And Collier's opinion was Albert has all the talent in the world, but he just seems to be going through the motions. He uh, was of a, of a family that had, uh, I believe it was a construction business. And Albert in the off season was involved in the construction business and then took time out to play football. But Collier felt that Albert didn't really give it everything he had until before the 1948 season, Albert had a meeting with uh, Clark Shaughnessy, the legendary college football coach. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shaughnessy told Albert, look at Sammy Baugh. Sammy Baugh has been playing this game for like, at that point it was 10 or 12 years. And he's better than ever because 
he puts his mind to it. And if you would do the same thing, you could be as good. Well, whether Albert could be as good as Sammy Baugh is probably debatable. But according to Collier, Albert took that talk to heart and said, this year, I'm going to do it. This year, I am going to concentrate on football. And in 1948, the only team that really gave the Browns any competition was the 49ers. There is every reason to believe the 49ers in 1948 were the second best team in professional football, probably better than anybody in the NFL. They had a record of they had a record of 12 and two. The only team they lost to was the Browns twice by a total of 10 points. They lost to the Browns by seven in Cleveland by three in San Francisco. They beat everybody else. And for their trouble, they got a ticket home after the season ended because the Browns were 14 and Oh, but the leader of that team was Frankie Albert. He was uh, he was quite a quarterback. Sure, sure. The final player I'd like to talk about is also one of the topics I wanted to really dive into on today's episode, Speck Sanders. Now, before we get deep into his career, tell us who Speck Sanders was and what made him such a special player. Well, I'll tell you, um, Warren, once I got the email from you asking me to uh, to do this podcast with you and telling me that the topic would be specifically Speck Sanders, I went about doing some additional research because, of course, I knew of him from mm-hmm. my book about the AAFC and knew of some of his exploits, but I really felt that uh, to be conversant on the topic, I needed to find out more, and uh, Speck Sanders... Um, he was, he he could do it all. He could literally do it all. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned earlier, um, this was the era when two platoon football was being phased out, but Sanders did go uh, both ways on offense and on defense. He hold or held, he held the NFL record because he only played one year. In the NFL. In fact, some of the research that I did here, I ran across um, an article on the internet, which pointedly asked the question, why is Speck Sanders not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? And the only thing I can come up with is people just don't think that he played long enough because I know you're about to get into some of this, but he, the numbers that he put up and what he did on defense when he came back after taking a year off is absolutely ridiculous. Yes, that is, that is very true. Now, um, he was, like many, many players of that era, um, his career was cut short by the fact that after college, he went into the military. And, and fought in World War II and, and missed the 1943, 44, and 45 seasons. He was the um, number six pick of the 1942 draft chosen by the Washington Redskins. He was the first ever number one draft pick from the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. Of course, there would be many, 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 many number one picks <laughs> from uh, Texas sure. after that, but Speck Sanders was the first. But 
instead of uh, starting his football career in 1943, he went into the war, didn't return until after the war ended, and chose then to sign with the uh, the Yankees for the 1946 season. So right there, uh, three years of his career were um, spent in pursuits other than football. And uh, he wound up with, as so many players do, injured knees. And as you mentioned, was forced to retire after the 1948 season, then sat out the 1949 season, came back in 1950, and all he did was lead the league in punting and set an NFL record for most interceptions in a season with right. uh, with 13, right. which lasted until uh, early 19, uh, 1960s when another, well, I almost said another Hall of Famer. Speck's not in the Hall of Fame, but we'll discuss that a little later. Uh, a guy by the name of Dick Night Train Lane intercepted 14 passes to break Sanders' record. Night Train Lane is in the Hall of Fame. So here's a guy who knew how to complete passes and knew how to intercept passes. So yep. he could throw the ball and he could play pass defense. He could run the ball. Well, I've got the numbers right here in front of me for his 1947 season in the, the All-America Conference. League leader in rushing with 1,477 yards, which was a new professional football record, which, of course, the NFL did not and still does not recognize. 18 rushing touchdowns and passing for 1,442 yards and 14 touchdowns and all-purpose yards, 2,000 193. Now, that's not the rushing yardage and the passing yardage combined. That is rushing yardage, punt return yardage, and kickoff return yardage for mm-hmm. 2,193 mm-hmm. total yards. And on defense, he uh, intercepted three passes. Mm-hmm. Other mm-hmm. than that, it was an off year. <laughs> he really was something else. I mean, I don't know how much you might be able to tell us about his career at Texas. Um, I was searching. I couldn't find a whole lot. But if you can, if you know anything, can you share anything with us about his his playing days in college? Well, I had as much uh, luck finding out about the days at the University of Texas as you did. Everything <laughs> that I was able to find out about Speck was uh, basically about his professional career. But the fact that he was the first ever first round draft pick and was the number six pick in the draft. Now, granted, the science of drafting in 1942 was not nearly as detailed as it is today. But uh, nonetheless, to be the number six overall pick in the draft means he must have done a lot of uh, impressive things at the University of Texas. No doubt. No doubt. And like you said, he was drafted by the Redskins today known as the Washington football team yeah. in the 1942 NFL draft. But, and again, as you said, like so many others, the war came calling and football had to take a back seat. When he finished his military duties, he went back to college. At least that's the way I saw it. Why would he decide to go back to college and not pursue a career in the NFL? Please, if you can, tell us about some of the decisions he made at that point in his life and why not just forego college 
and take the Redskins up and go play for them in the NFL? Well, that was a choice that a lot of players faced. And uh, I, I read a number of stories like that in doing the AAFC book. And that was a unique choice because most of the players uh, that I am familiar with anyway went in the other direction. Yes, they still had eligibility left, but they chose to take the money and uh, turn professional rather than go back to college. Now, these players, um, the way things worked was that a player would be eligible to sign with the professionals if his college class had graduated. Even if the player's college class had graduated, he might still have eligibility remaining and could go back and fulfill that eligibility. In fact, I, I mentioned in the AAFC book that um, the Browns in particular uh, got into all kinds of trouble with Ohio State because Paul Brown had the familiarity with the players who played for him. He knew that their um, class had graduated, therefore they were eligible to turn professional, and he tried to lure them to the Browns, and the folks in Columbus got very upset. So most players of that era did decide that uh, they would take the money. Sanders was the exception, and I can't say exactly why that was, but, uh, I mean, nowadays, uh, we would look at someone like that and probably shower him with praise for going back and completing an education when the money beckoned. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't exactly say why he chose to do that, but obviously he was a, a man who knew that there was going to be life beyond football and he mm -hmm. wanted to be prepared for it and felt that the education and the degree would be would be worthwhile. And I think he probably deserves to be uh, be applauded for that. Although the money getting thrown around then was not like the money that gets thrown around today. No, without a doubt. So, so the Redskins draft him. He goes on to serve in the military, gets out, decides not to pursue a football career at that point, goes back to college. And just prior to the 1946 season, the AAFC and its New York franchise, the Yankees, came calling. Now, we're going to get into the Yankees a bit later, as, as you and I have already mentioned. But tell us how they convinced Speck to give football a go again. What made them think he would be able to play the game at such a highly competitive level after having sat out for such a long period of time? Well, the Yankees had um, a coach by the name of uh, Ray Flaherty, who had been the coach of the Redskins when Sanders was drafted and therefore knew him very well. And Flaherty was convinced that regardless of the fact that Sanders had been away from football for, well, let's see, 43, 44, and 45. So for three seasons, he'd been away from football. His talent was such that he would be able to pick up where he left off, or at least uh, come close to picking up from where he left off. 
And Flaherty uh, was a persuasive individual. He could convince Sanders that we we're going to have a strong team, which the Yankees were going to have. And of course, there was uh, Dan Topping's money. Dan Topping being the owner of the Yankees, probably the wealthiest owner in the All-America Football Conference. And this is the All-America Football Conference. They didn't know at that point how many um, star players they were going to be able to get. So here's a chance for you to uh, maybe be a big fish in a rather small pond. And of course, the lure of New York City. It was still the, the media capital of the world, the Big Apple. And hey, who wouldn't want to play here? So they had a, a number of factors in their favor. And they just believed here's a guy with such talent. The years that he has sat out of the game are are not going to diminish that talent. And they turned out to be right about that. Mm-hmm. I wonder why Washington didn't try to entice Speck to give the NFL a try at that point. Well, I have um, a theory about that, and it goes back to uh, the research that I did for the, the AAFC book. The Redskins were owned by the notorious George Preston Marshall, Ugh. who um, had a very low opinion of the All-America Football Conference. This is just a theory. And I have no proof whatsoever that uh, there's any truth to this. But um, a few years later, the Redskins drafted uh, another player, uh, a running back, who chose to sign with the AAFC. And Marshall just sort of sloughed it off and said, well, that, that'll be good. A year in the minor leagues will help this guy, and then we'll pick him <laughs> up after he's had some seasoning. That may have been their uh, idea about about Sanders, especially since he had sat out for those three years. Mm-hmm. Marshall may have thought, well, a year in AAFC, which is strictly minor league, it'll get the rust off of it. Then we'll swoop in and take him. That might have been why they didn't pursue him uh, more vigorously than they Mm. did. Mm. Interesting. Interesting theory. Well, I would have to say the Yankees certainly made a great decision by going after Speck. I mean, that first year he got better and better as the season wore on. He carried the ball 140 times for just over 700 yards and scored six touchdowns. He caught passes for another three touchdowns, started nine games at quarterback, threw for 400-plus yards and four touchdowns. So statistically, he was pretty good. What else can you tell us about his first year? How good was he? Well, probably the only reason that he was not the starting quarterback for the Yankees that year is because uh, they had a guy named Ace Parker who had played for uh, Dan Topping when Topping was an NFL owner. And coaches, as you know, kind of uh, like to go with veterans when the, the talent is relatively equal. So otherwise, Sanders would have been the starting quarterback, which he became in the second year. But, I mean, you were just rattling off the numbers there. 
and uh, and they are so impressive. He was well in one of the um, websites that I have been researching said Spec Sanders was the Dion Sanders of his day, which I think is an interesting way <laughs> yeah. of putting it because yeah. of the immense versatility that uh, that the man had. And Ray Flaherty knew what he had in Sanders and made use of him because, again, as I've uh, pointed out, this was still the era of two platoon football, and Sanders was able to play offense and defense. And uh, because he was equally adept, either way, I think Flaherty wanted to take advantage of that. You got two great talents there: a guy like uh, Parker, who was would turn out to be in the, the final year of uh, his career, who could provide the veteran leadership, and then Sanders, the uh, the young buck, who can do just about everything else. So I think uh, Flaherty was was making use of two um, outstanding talents that he had at his uh, disposal. No doubt. I mean, he his and his second year, like you said, was just absolutely spectacular. It looked as if the it's Yankees, the yeah, look, they had something. The Yankees made a great move. They had something really special. I'm most interested to know, however, how was he able to elevate his game like he did? Um, you know, he, he ran for 18 touchdowns, like you had mentioned, ran for over 1,400 yards, threw for over 1,400 yards. His completion rate was fi- over 54%, threw for 14 touchdowns, intercepted three passes, was the punter for the team. He took the Yankees all the way to the title game. The Yankees went 11-2-1 in the regular season. I mean, I don't know how you describe just how good Spec Sanders was, particularly in that second season of his. It was off the charts. Well, something you you just mentioned is uh, is important. And that is the completion percentage of uh, better than fifty percent. I mean, nowadays, if a quarterback isn't like somewhere around sixty seven percent, he's on the bench because the game has changed so much. The rules have changed so much in Sanders era. If you were completing more than half of your passes, then you were an all pro caliber quarterback and 54% is outstanding for that era. What I'm, I'm thinking, first of all, it's just, okay, Ace Parker is gone and I am pretty much the whole show. I'm the guy who's going to throw it. I'm the guy who is going to run it. The offense is mine. Um, Flaherty based the offensive system on the talents of this one individual. So it was a system that was designed to maximize what Sanders was able to do. Now, I, I don't know exactly how to say this and not sound as if I'm denigrating the accomplishments because I really do not mean to do that, but uh, I think that you do kind of have to take into consideration that some of those numbers, particularly there was one game, one game that I, I'm sure, Warren, you're, you're aware of, uh, against the Chicago Rockets, 
Mm-hmm. And Sanders ran for 250 yards, which was the uh, professional football record. The Chicago Rockets were a horrible team. Terrible. Awful. The Chicago, the Chicago Rockets lost 13 games. They were terrible. I mean, that doesn't mean that anybody could run for 250 yards because it was a terrible team. But some of the yardage was compiled against uh, real sad sacks like the Baltimore Colts, who were an awful team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, who were an awful team, the Chicago Rockets, who were an awful team. I mean, six of your games right there are against teams that were absolutely dreadful. So that may account for some of it. And again, I don't mean to denigrate the accomplishments in any way, but I think you do kind of have to take that into consideration. Some of those yards were picked up against teams with horrid defenses but but nonetheless you, you still got to run for it you still got to got to pass for it and it was an offense designed to maximize what Sanders was able to do i mean it is so tantalizing when you think if he had gone pro if the option had been there to go pro in 1943 it really wasn't if there was no war if sanders could have gone pro when he was drafted by the redskins this is uh, just an example of the kind of numbers he might have put up or close to this on uh, a regular basis. And and part of the reason he didn't duplicate those numbers in 48 was just the pounding that he took and mm-hmm. uh, took a toll on the knees. Next year, the numbers were still good, but but way down, the, the carries were down and the yardage was, was down. And that was because he just took such a pounding in in 1947. But you do just have to wonder, if there had been no war, if Sanders could have gone pro in 1943, the Redskins, remember, played for the NFL championship in 1942. Unlike a lot of high draft picks, he would have been going mm-hmm. to a very good team that could have blocked for him. And, well, who knows? what he might have been able to accomplish. 1947 might have been duplicated many times over under Mm -hmm. optimal conditions. Mm -hmm. And like you said, his third season, still good, just wasn't as good. I mean, he still ran for 759 yards, nine touchdowns, had 918 yards passing, five touchdowns. What do you think was the strongest aspect to his game what part of his game was his best i i think anybody who can rush for 1432 yards and average average 6.2 yards per carry i mean uh, jim brown for his career averaged 5.2 and sanders for his career averaged better than jim brown Granted, it was not a nine-year career like Brown's, but still, for three years, 5.4 yards. And I think anybody who can put up those kind of numbers, but there must have been a lot of quickness in his game. There had to be, and I'm thinking in terms of a guy who could intercept 13 passes, to keep up with the NFL's best receivers. And obviously Sanders would have been assigned to guard the best receiver on the opposing team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There had to be a lot of quickness to his game to be able to hit those holes for 1,432 yards. 
I'm guessing, because of course I, I never did see him play, but this must be a guy who had a lot of quickness, who was opening a uh, spurt to get to that hole, and he was just through it in the blink of an eye. And to be able to keep up with the best receivers on the other team, uh, go where they went. Uh, when they zigged, he zigged. When they zagged, he zagged. He had to be a very quick individual to accomplish what he accomplished on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I don't know. Was he big for that day? He's six foot one, weighed one ninety six. Um, physical stature. How did he compare to the opposition? Well, that would be pretty good size for for that era. Because I I remember in uh, doing my my research for the uh, AASC book how. Uh, the writers would often talk about the opposing team coming in to uh, play the Browns or whoever it is, and this is the the size of their line. And in those days, you would have men on the offensive line who weighed 210 and 220, and that was pretty much par for the course for those days. So to be uh, close to 200 pounds, I would guess for that era, that's probably uh, rather large. Okay, And certainly didn't hurt in being able to um, knock down the guys who were trying to tackle you as you were running with the football. Mm -hmm. Now we said how awesome, how incredible his 1948 season was. So before we get on to what I think is his most incredible season of them all, let's summarize his career to this point. He plays for just three years with the Yankees in the AAFC. 47, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 46, 47, 48. Over that time, he rushes for 2,900 yards, 33 touchdowns, passes for almost 2,800 yards, and throws for 23 touchdowns. Now, before we get into what happened in 1950, why did he decide to hang up his cleats after the 1948 season. Well, Warren, as I understood it, and I do have, uh, I think, a couple of paragraphs in the AAFC book uh, that discuss his decision to um, to call it a career after three years. It was, as has been the bane of so many uh, football players' existence, bad knees, mm. injuries, and and bad knees in particular. And uh, when you are a running back and you need to be making those cuts and the knees don't respond, um, football was, well, it's always been a physical game. Of course, it's a, it's a physical game now. But in those days, you didn't have the uh, equipment that they have now. And I think, well, look at the, the total number of rushes in three years um, 540 rushes. So you're looking at a average of 180 a year and the big year of 1947, 231 rushes that has to take a toll on the body. And uh, again, Sanders started his career at uh, the age of a scene 20. He was 28 when he started his career. Yeah. So he, he was yeah. at, uh, he's at the point where most guys are at their peak He's just starting mm-hmm. his career. Mm-hmm. So 
That, according to the articles that I read in looking at the 1948 season, th- that was the, the reason that Sanders gave for, for stepping down. The knees in particular just were not able to handle the, the necessary uh, pounding anymore, mm-hmm. or at least uh, in, in his opinion, he wasn't able to perform at the level that he expected of himself, and that's why he decided to retire. Right. So he calls it quits after 1948. The AAFC closes shop after the 1949 season, and the Yankees coach somehow talks Speck into coming back for the 1950 season. Speck agreed, but he said he would only play defense, not offense, defense. Um, how about telling us just how good he was that 1950 season? We've referred to it, and like I said, as good as he was in 1947, based on everything that has happened, holy moly, 1950, you got to be kidding me. Well, first of all, um, Sanders made the first Pro Bowl team. The Pro Bowl was played for the first time in, uh, in 1950. Sanders made the Pro Bowl team because he led the league in punting and he had the 13 interceptions, which we referred to earlier, which was at the time the NFL record. So, I mean, right there, those just two accomplishments, 13 interceptions in a 12-game season. So you're averaging an interception per game. Nowadays, if a guy picks off three or four passes a year, well, he's great. He's yep. fabulous. you got to yep. put him in the Pro Bowl, put, put him in the Hall of Fame. And here's a guy who averaged a pick every game. And uh, the um, and Yanks he punted and had, he punted. He had an average of forty two point three yards per punt. And this is a guy with bad knees. Yes, exactly. So that's what uh, earned him recognition in the first Pro Bowl in nineteen fifty. And uh, I I don't know exactly what led to him deciding after nineteen fifty. That's it. I'm done yeah, uh, because those those numbers are outstanding. And yeah, I mean, the only was, thing I could think of, Gary, is that his knees just caused him so much trouble that despite how well he played on defense, it was just still too much for him, uh, the punishment and his knees. That's the only thing I can perfect, come up with. That makes perfect sense. And we have to take into consideration this is this is the late 1940s. In 1950, um, medicine was not what it is today. Uh, the, the care that professional football players got then, not what it is today. Maybe if today's uh, surgical techniques had existed in 1950, they could have um, fixed up those knees and Sanders could have played a few more years, but mm-hmm. they didn't get the kind of medical care then that they do now. But I, I would have to agree with you. I mean, nothing else really makes sense. You're coming off uh, a season where you were the best punter in the league and the best defensive back in the league, and then you uh, you call it quits. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, who knows exactly why, but your theory, I think, makes as much sense as anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's truly tragic that 
he didn't get to play more than he did. So to circle back around to sort of where we started our conversation with or about Speck Sanders, the million-dollar question, Speck Sanders only played four years. And in that in those four years, he took a year off. He's a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association Hall of Very Good. Several, yes. several members of the Hall of Very Good have – it's sort of like a launching pad for some to actually make it to the Hall of Fame. But Speck has not been enshrined in Canton as a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I don't think there's a minimum number of years that you have to play. I don't think there's a requirement. Speck Sanders was a Hall of Fame talent. I don't think anybody can deny that. He did things that no one before him did, and he did things, frankly, that no one since has done. How the heck is he not in the Hall? Well, first of all, Warren, I think you're right. As far as I know, there is no um, requirement for the number of years played, unlike baseball, of course, which has a 10-year requirement to get into the Hall of Fame, unless it is waived for some uh, very good um, reason. Um, so, I mean, the, the average, I believe the average uh, shelf life of, of a running back, even even nowadays, is like four years. Of course, we're not talking about your Hall of Fame running backs, but uh, I don't believe there is a minimum requirement. I was made aware of this Hall of Very Good just uh, a few months ago, and I did not know about its existence until then. And I did some research into it, and I see that a number of uh, people who have been inducted into the Hall of Very Good have since been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So um, four years, granted, not a long career. I think part of it is the fact that Sanders only played the four years. Mm-hmm. The other part and we talked about this in uh, in some detail in the, the previous podcast, we have to face the fact that there are still a lot of uh, people out there who look at the AAFC and say, well, yeah, you put together those numbers in the AAFC. Yeah. The AAFC was yeah. nothing. Yeah. AAFC, 1,432 yards in the AAFC. Well, so what? The AAFC was just another league that uh, couldn't compete with the NFL. So that doesn't get you into the hall of fame. There's mm-hmm. gotta be prejudice against the AAFC. I really believe there, there has to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, he is severely significantly overlooked and who knows, maybe someday he'll get a little more recognition because the name spec Sanders should be a much bigger name when it comes to football. Okay. The Yankees. Tell us about the New York Yankees football team. Who were they, and why did they choose the name Yankees? Oh, well, the the New York Yankees, that is a a very interesting topic. The New York Yankees were uh, born as the Brooklyn Dodgers of the NFL in 1930. Not a successful franchise. Actually, it's it's more accurate to say the, the Yankees were born when Dan Topping bought 
part interest in the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1934. Copping was probably the richest owner of the AAFC. His mm-hmm. family owned the Anaconda Copper Company. So they were loaded. Copping bought part interest in the Brooklyn Dodgers football team of the NFL in 1934. Didn't have a lot of success with them. And in the early 1940s, along with his partner, Del Webb, Topping bought the New York Yankees baseball team from the estate of uh, Colonel Jacob Rupert. Mm -hmm. Part of that deal included Yankee Stadium. So Dan Topping owns Yankee Stadium. He owns a football team that's playing in Ebbets Field. He wants to move that football team into Yankee Stadium. Lots more seats. And from what I have read, Topping was a man of uh, some uh, breeding and felt that a borough like Brooklyn is beneath a man of his social stature. I want to get out of here. (laughs) I want to move my team to, to Yankee Stadium. But he was not able to do that because right across the Harlem River from Yankee Stadium was the Polo Grounds and the New York Giants played there. And the Mara family, who owned the uh, Giants, said, we own territorial rights to the Bronx, where the Yankee Stadium is located. It's only a mile from where we play. We don't want another team playing a mile away from us. So the Dodgers have to stay in Ebbets Field. And the rest of the NFL went along with that. So here's a guy who owns Yankee Stadium, and his team can't play there. It's like you bought a house, but the people across the street say, we've got territorial rights to that side of the street. You can't move in. So Topping can't move into um, to Yankee Stadium. He's not happy about that. The team, except for two good years in 1940 and 41, was not a very good team. It was affected like all teams were by the manpower shortage created by the war. In uh, 1945, the Brooklyn team merged with the Boston team. They played four of their home games in Fenway Park and one in Ebbets Field. And then the All-America Football Conference comes along. And they tell uh, Topping, hey, we'd be glad to have you in our new league. And, of course, we have no territorial rights to the uh, borough of the Bronx or the city of New York. You want to play your home games in the stadium you own? Go right ahead. We'd be happy to have it. So Topping decided to move his team into the uh, AAFC and did so. And the conditions under which he did are really rather interesting. The AAFC really wanted the New York Yankees. They really wanted Topping. So they gave him a few perks, shall we say, to move over into the AAFC. So that is how the New York Yankees football team came into being. Hmm. How strategic was it to name a team the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Giants? There was strategy behind that, was there not? 
Well, of course, they're borrowing the name of the uh, the baseball team, and in in all cases, or the vast majority of cases, they would also be uh, renting the stadium that the baseball team played in. I don't know if it was just uh, really a lack of creativity. I mean, the the, <laughs> the Pittsburgh Steelers were originally called the Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, Cleveland's first NFL team was called the Cleveland Indians, and I don't know if it was just uh, a lack of uh, originality or if the owners just felt that by by associating with the baseball team, because you have to remember, at this point, the NFL in the 1940s and before that in the 30s was very much a second-tier sport. Mm-hmm. It was way below Major League Baseball in popularity. It was below college football. It was below boxing in popularity. It was very much uh, a fringe sport at that time. So the owners may have felt, let's just take the baseball team's name, kind of ride on their coattails, and hope the publicity that will be generated by the mention of our name will be helpful to the team. Mm -hmm. Or it could have been just, we're too lazy to think up a name. We're going to play in Ebbets Field. We'll call ourselves the Dodgers. I I can't say exactly what the the rationale was for most of those decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the Yankees were a good team, no doubt about it. And we sort of hit upon this earlier during our discussion about spec. In 1946, they were 10-3-1, and and they lost the championship game to the Browns 14-9. In 1947, they were 11-2-1. Again, they lost the championship game to the Browns, 14-3. In 48, they had a down year. They went 68, uh, 6-8. And, eight. and in 1949, they were 8-4 and, and lost in the semifinals to the Niners, 17-7. This was a good football team. They had Tom Landry at some point, Ace Parker, Frank Sick, uh, Sinkwich, and of course, Speck Sanders. How good were the Yankees, and were they good enough to possibly compete in the NFL? Well, I think that is a question. Uh, The second half of that question, were they good enough to compete in the NFL, that was eventually proven, and we we will get to that. Um, But the Yankees were a very strong team. The Browns needed a last-minute touchdown to win that 1946 championship game. They were trailing nine to seven with about a minute and a half to play in that game and needed a last second uh, autogram to Dante Lavelli touchdown pass to pull out the championship. Otherwise we'd be talking about the Browns with three championships and the Yankees with the other one. The Yankees had, as I mentioned earlier, Ray Flaherty mm-hmm. as their head coach. Mm-hmm. That was a real coup for them to get Flaherty because he had coached the Redskins into three NFL championship games and won two of them. So uh, here is a guy with a great pedigree deciding to cast his lot with the AAFC. Now, there was um, a controversy when Topping moved his team into the AAFC as to the players that were under contract to his team, who did they belong to? Topping said they belonged to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elmer Layden said, no, they belong to the NFL and they're staying in the NFL. 
so uh, in anticipation of this discussion coming up, I looked at the rosters of the uh, 1945 Boston Yanks slash Brooklyn Tigers and the 1946 New York Yankees. And there were only three players who were on the Yankees who were also on the Boston Brooklyn team the year before. So, so, so the NFL actually, sort of won. Yes, which was actually a break for topping because that team was not very good. It went three, mm-hmm. six, and one. So really, most of those players he probably ultimately didn't want. When you get to the AAFC, you can sign anybody who is not under contract to somebody else. Now, what topping did... As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the AAFC owners really wanted him. The main reason was they wanted Yankee Stadium. It would give them so much prestige. Credibility, yeah. uh, Yes, credibility, prestige. This upstart All-America Conference has one of its teams playing in the most famous stadium in the United States, Yankee Stadium. One of our teams plays there because the NFL still had uh, teams playing in some uh, kind of ramshackle places like like Cleveland's League Park, which mm-hmm. was, was falling apart. We've got Yankee Stadium, big feather in the cap of the AAFC. But in order to get topping, I mean, he had leverage and he was a smart man. He used it. First of all, topping said, uh, I want to join your league, but I don't want to pay the uh, the franchise fee. I want you to waive the franchise fee. Okay, no problem. We'll waive the <laughs> franchise fee. Um, that was not unanimous. The decision to do that was not unanimous, but enough owners went along with it. So Dan Topping got to join the AAFC for free. Then Topping said, I have to have a strong team. It's very important. If I'm going to put people in the seats here at Yankee Stadium and I'm competing with the Giants, remember, if I'm going to put people in the seats, I've got to have a strong team. You need to help me do that. Here's the way you need to help me do that. You need to give me some of your players. (laughs) Well, that didn't sit too well with some of the owners either, but they decided to go along with that. So here is what the AAFC did. Now, Warren, this was no expansion type draft. At this point, um, teams might have had uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 guys under contract at this point, because this was before the league had even so much as played a game. So teams might have a lot of players under contract. Topping said, I will let you guys, each team can choose three players that I can't have. Anybody else on your roster, wow. I can take. Wow. They were able to they were able to protect three players and anybody else was wide open. So consider like in the case in in Cleveland. And I, I do refer back to Cleveland a lot because of my familiarity with the, the, the situation here, but Paul Brown was accumulating a lot of talent. He could only protect three guys from Dan Topping. There was a a player under contract to the Browns by the name of uh, Eddie Prokop, who was a native Clevelander, had starred at uh, Cathedral Latin High School in Cleveland, played football at Georgia Tech, was an All-American, 
and signed with his hometown team, wanted to play for the Browns. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can only protect three guys. You've got guys like Otto Graham and Marion Motley and Dante Lavelli mm. and Max Speedy. And you can only protect three of these guys. So Paul Brown looked at his roster and said, you know, as Eddie Prokop is an all-American running back, but can I justify making him one of these three guys that I protect? And he couldn't do that. So Eddie Prokop wound up with the New York Yankees. Hmm. And ironically, Prokop was a running back and a defensive back. And ironically, I mentioned that uh, last-second touchdown pass to uh, Lavelli that won the 1946 championship game. Guess who the defensive back was who was uh, guarding Lavelli on that play? Ah. Eddie Prokoff. Eddie Prokoff. The game-winning touchdown was scored against Eddie Prokoff. So this is the kind of thing that uh, the topping he got a lot of talent from other teams because when you can only protect three guys, he got a lot of top-notch talent. Mm-hmm. But he kept going back to the fact that I need to be able to fill my seats. We need to have a good, strong team in New York. So give me what I want. So Topping was not the most popular owner in the AAFC, but he was a shrewd man. He held all the cards, and he played his hand very wisely. So in 1946, a first-class coach and first-class talent and the Yankees just totally obliterated the AAFC Eastern Division. As you said, they finished 10-3 and 1. The the other teams, Buffalo finished 3-10 and 1. Brooklyn finished 3-10 and 1 and Miami finished 3 and 11. So there was no race in the uh, in the uh, Eastern, Eastern Division of the AAFC. I mean the Yankees clinched like by the 7th game it was over. Right. Now now, did the Yankees, did Topping, um, did the Yankees attract crowds? I mean, what kind of crowds did the Yankees attract? The Yankees drew very well. They did, in fact, let me see if I can find the uh, numbers for the first year's attendance and tell you exactly how many fans they drew. Uh, let's see here. It's nice to have your own book as reference material. <laughs> kind of cool. Uh, anyway, I know I have the attendance numbers here. So what did I know? The Browns set all kinds of attendance records in 1946. The Yankees uh, drew big crowds. Big crowds, the Yankee Stadium even filled it uh, a couple of times. They were... Probably the most um, solid AAFC team next to the Browns in terms of financial stability because of the the family fortune that Topping had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He never had to concern himself with um, overpaying for for talent, which was part of the reason why the AAFC didn't last too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would no, think that if you're gonna. No. If, if you're gonna if you're gonna put a team in the cathedral that was the old Yankee Stadium, you better put fannies in the seats, and that's part of the reason why Topping asked for those types of 
favors from the re- from the league and probably why the league gave him those favors it would you know when you're trying to build something new you need great anchor teams um, absolutely and i i did find the numbers here the yankees were second in the aafc in attendance for 1946 they drew 194,600 for seven to, games to seven home games and um, that was number two in the league by a very slim margin over, surprisingly, over Chicago, mm. which in its first year was was not a joke. It eventually became such, but not in the first year. So the Yankees were second in the AAFC in attendance. So they, they did well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Gary, when the AAFC folded up, essentially three teams were taken in by the NFL, the Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and in some form, the Baltimore Colts. Why not the Yankees? I think the reason the Yankees weren't absorbed is because at that time, for um, a very brief period, there was a glut of football in New York City. For 1946 and uh, 1947, you had the Giants in the NFL, the Yankees in the AAFC, and the Brooklyn Dodgers in the AAFC. Mm-hmm. The Dodgers were, were somewhat an afterthought, but you had three teams in the uh, the New York City area, in 46, in 47, and in in 48 then in 1948 a guy by the name of uh, of Ted Collins I was going owned, there yep <laughs> I had a feeling you were yeah I, a guy I, by I, the name this of, gets so convoluted for me because I got another one after Ted Collins for you but go on so a guy by the name of Ted Collins who owned the Boston Yanks for some reason decided you know what is going to save me financially? I'm going to move my team to New York City. <laughs> That's what New York City needs is a fourth professional football team. I will go there and all my financial worries will be over. So the NFL gives its permission and the Boston Yanks move to New York City where they are going to share the polo grounds with the Giants. So for 1949, well, the glut is kind of uh, reduced because after the 1948 season, the Brooklyn Dodgers threw in the towel and they essentially merged with the Yankees. But you've still got three professional football teams in New York. When the AAFC and the uh, NFL merged after the 1949 season, if the Yankees had been part of the merger and moved intact into the NFL, well, now you've got uh, the you've got the, the Yankees, the, the the Boston Yanks became the uh, the Bulldogs and became the Yanks, and that gets confusing too. Okay, that's but, where I, mean, I was going been, next. Okay, yeah, it would have resulted in just so much football in NFL in uh, in New York City, like. As big as New York City is, can it really support all this football? And I don't think, I mean, Dan Topping had said 
um, during the 1949 season. You know, if it would facilitate a merger of the two leagues or some sort of peace agreement between the two leagues, I would be glad to liquidate my franchise. I don't really want to do it, but if it will help put an end to the pro football war, I will liquidate my franchise. So I don't think he was too unhappy about letting go of the the New York Yankees. That is my theory as to why the Yankees didn't move intact over into the uh, the NFL. Okay. So if I follow correctly, after the forty, uh, so after the AAFC was done, the Yankees went bye bye. The Boston Yanks move in to New York. And they become the New York Bulldogs? No. The, the, the Bulldogs were there. The Boston Yanks come in, and they become the New York Yanks. Is that correct? I, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble between the, Bulldog, the New York Bulldogs and the New York Yanks. Were they the same franchise? Were they different franchises, a name change, that, that's where I, I'm totally confused. That does get very confusing. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm rather confused myself, so we are going to go to the computer and okay. figure out exactly who became what. All right, well, here, here's what, what I got. Do. Well, here's what I got. You tell me if I'm right. I think in a crazy way, if I follow all of this, the New York Yanks were the New York Bulldogs whose lineage can be traced back. Wait, wait, do you hear what I got here? Who can, Their lineage can be traced back to the Boston Yanks. And after the 1951 season, the Yanks were sold or taken over by the league. They moved the Yanks to Dallas for the 1952 season where they played as the Dallas Texans. And after that one miserable year in Dallas, the property of the Texans, including player contracts, were awarded to a Baltimore group that created a new Baltimore Colts franchise because the Colts from the AAFC never really materialized. So, in a way, this is a long stretch, in a way, today's Indianapolis Colts can actually trace their roots back through Baltimore, Dallas, New York, and Boston. Wow. I mean... Well, yes. It's crazy. No one in their right mind can ever... The Indianapolis Colts or the Boston Yanks? It is, it is crazy, and yes, there that that lineage, that lineage does work. Now, the way this the way this happened, the Boston Yanks, owned by Ted Collins, moved to New York for the nineteen forty nine season. They changed their name for nineteen forty nine to the New York Bulldogs. The Boston Yanks became the New York Bulldogs in 1949. Because you couldn't have the Yanks and the Yankees in the same city. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that would 
you'd have the baseball Yankees and the football Yankees and both. You couldn't go by the, sh- the short name Yanks because there's a team already called the Yanks. And so in 1950, the New York Bulldogs changed their name to the New York Yanks. And essentially, the New York Bulldogs merged with the New York Yankees of the AAFC. And that's the and team became, that Speck Sanders played for? In, uh, in 1950. 50, yeah. And that would be, let me, uh, let me check here. Boy, this is nice being able to have my computer right here in front of me. <laughs> yes, that is the team that Speck Sanders played for because the guy who talked him into coming back the Yankees had essentially merged with the Bulldogs. And then to avoid the confusion or to create the confusion, they changed their name to the New York Yanks. Many of the Yankee players, because it was a, a merger, wound up with the New York Yanks in 1950. So did the head coach, Red Strader, the yes. head coach of the New York Yankees in 1949, became the head coach of the New York Yanks in 1950, it was Red Strader who talked Speck Sanders into coming out of retirement and playing for the Yanks. Now, this leads to the question you asked earlier, were the Yankees good enough to have been able to compete in the NFL? The Bulldogs mm-hmm. in 1949 were a terrible team. Yeah, they, they were, were one, like... one, ten, and one. Right. Then, with the influx of talent from the New York Yankees, the New York Yanks of 1950 were seven and five. Right. And that's so with Speck I in the lineup. With Speck in the lineup, yes. So that, I think, is a pretty reasonable indication that if the Yankees had moved intact into the NFL, they certainly at least would have been highly competitive and maybe better than that. Mm -hmm. But then after that 1950 season, they became a disaster. They went one nine and two in 51. They were finished. And that last year, the Yanks had to play a home game in Los Angeles and another home game in Detroit because the Yankees baseball team needed Yankee Stadium for the World Series. So mm-hmm. it was sort of a a very sad ending for a very colorful franchise. <laughs> yes. It, it, I mean, things just got so confusing there at the end of the 1940s and into the 1950s, as you pointed out, um, the ancestry of the Indianapolis Colts gets traced all the way back to the the Boston Yanks. It's a, it's a crazy thing. Yeah. And the, really the, is. the, the Dallas, uh, the original Dallas Texans is a crazy story. I don't know if you've uh, done a podcast on that or not, but, but you ought to, because that is a, a crazy story too. Yep. That, that, that's coming next season for sure. Next football season, because I think a lot of people are going to be surprised to find out that Dallas actually had an NFL franchise before, long before, the Dallas Cowboys. What this goes to show 
Warren, is that a lot of contemporary football fans, with the NFL being the, the behemoth that it is today, would are probably listening to this podcast right now and saying, are these guys on dope or something? I mean, what is this? <laughs> that can't be because the NFL is the picture of, well, basically the picture of stability with the exception of that uh, 1995 when the Browns moved, the Oilers moved, the Rams moved, yeah. the Seahawks wanted yeah. to move. But other than that, the NFL is the rock of Gibraltar of sports leagues and, and people hearing this podcast and hearing us talk about, well, this team moved here and there and they changed this and, and they did that. And the nickname was this for a year and that for a year and something else for a year. Like these guys must be smoking something that, that kind of stuff. But that's what pro football was like in the late forties and early fifties before it became what it is today. It was still even in the late forties and in, in, in the early fifties, really, it is very true that that famous 1958 overtime championship game is what made the NFL or was the beginning, the first brick really in the the foundation of what the NFL has become since then. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Gary, I'm going to have you back another time, but for now, this has been terrific. I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes once again. As I've said before, you are a wealth of knowledge. Loved our conversation about Spec Sanders and trying to figure out the convoluted history of the New York Yanks, New York Yankees, New York Bulldogs, the Indianapolis Colts. Crazy. <laughs> and uh, Gary, Boston thank you. Yanks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Warren, it was a great pleasure. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much for the invitation. You got it. Anytime. One has to wonder what kind of numbers Spec Sanders might have put up had he started his football career at the age of 22 instead of 28. Of course, that would have been with the then Washington Redskins of the NFL instead of the New York Yankees because the AAFC didn't start play until 1946. Still, in just his brief career on the offensive side of the ball, Speck Sanders put up some pretty hefty numbers. As a tailback, he rushed the ball 540 times for exactly 2,900 yards. He scored 33 touchdowns and averaged 5.4 yards a carry. He also scored three touchdowns on receptions. As a quarterback, Speck attempted 421 passes and completed 206 for 2,829 yards and 23 touchdowns. And he was no slouch on defense either as evidenced by his spectacular 1950 season when he intercepted the ball 13 times in just 12 games. In fact, his career numbers on defense were as follows. He intercepted the ball 19 times and scored one touchdown. Speck also scored on a punt return and took two kickoffs back for touchdowns. As a punter, he had a career average of 40.9 yards on 192 punts. No doubt, Speck Sanders was a one-of-a-kind talent. A Hall of Fame talent? Sure. 
I think he was. But does he deserve to be inducted? Well, you know, I'm not sure based on the limited amount of time he played that he should be in the Hall of Fame. But wow, what an impact he made. As for the Yankees, I wonder what would have happened had the Yankees been able to keep everyone together and move to the NFL along with the Browns and Niners. I wonder how that would have affected the Giants and the future New York Jets. They certainly made an impact at the gate and on the field during their brief existence. Overall, during their four years of play, the Yankees were 35 wins, 17 losses, and two ties. They made the AAFC playoffs in three of their four years, losing in the championship game to the Cleveland Browns in 1946 and 1947, and the divisional round of the playoffs to the San Francisco 49ers in 1949. Certainly a terrific football team. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest today, Gary Webster, author of the terrific book, The League That Didn't Exist, The History of the All-America Football Conference. And if any of you are hockey fans, be on the lookout for Gary's new book about the brief existence of the NHL in Cleveland as he takes a look back at the two-year run of the Cleveland Barons, a topic I will be covering with Gary in the not-too-distant future. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.